I'm Michael McMullen. Welcome once again to the World Snooker Tour podcast. And for our last episode before Christmas, we're joined by this year's World Championship runner-up and, of course, the 2005 winner, Sean Murphy. Sean, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Merry Christmas. Yeah, indeed. Now, I don't want to start on a low note, so I'm not going to ask you to go through again the harrowing details you've shared with us before about your difficult childhood and all the horrible things you went through in school. The one thing I would like to ask you, though, as you were growing up, did that make snooker your sort of escape, your refuge from all of that, where you could get away from the realities of life? Oh, completely. You know, snooker was the only thing I had. You know, it was it was the it was the way out. It was the opportunity, um, and it took me away from, as you say, the things that were going on at school, uh, family life, stuff like that. You know, wasn't great. So, yeah, um, snooker was where I sought solace. Um, you make those young connections with friends and stuff at junior tour events and, you know, guys that we've now become, you know, professionals, we're all, you know, we've kind of all grown up together. And I think to some degree, uh, without knowing everyone's personal circumstances, but I'm sure we've all, you know, similar stories in common. Um, most people in snooker have come up through, you know, the club system and most people involved in snooker come from a quite a, you know, a working class background and, um, very few players come from a, you know, a wealthy family. Uh, certainly, I don't. And um, I think, to some degree, we've all shared those struggles. And I think that's why, obviously, no, you know, you can't be best friends with everyone. There's 128 players on the tour, and all the staff, and everyone involved in the circuit as it moves around. But um, most people get on because most people have got those shared values. You turned pro then just before your 16th birthday was when you made your debut. Now that's hard enough to do to come into a very adult environment at such an age. A lot more so though when you haven't had that grounding of school and of course you'd been taken out of school at an early age because of what you were going through. Yeah, I left school at 13 just just a couple of days before year 9 finished. Um and uh, yeah, it was a very unpleasant experience, but you know that freed me up. To, to do what I'd kind of been doing anyway for for some time, which was playing snooker full-time. And, uh, you know, that gave me the opportunities to, to play in more tournaments, to travel to practice with more professionals instead of having to go to school. We used to jump in the car and head up to practice with Nigel Bond or Jason Ferguson or Mick Price and, you know, players like that. Then Peter Ebden came to the table and that was my grounding, which which took me to the tour. But yeah, the arrival on the tour as a young man, I was 15, two weeks shy of my 16th birthday, um, was exciting. But very, very quickly, very quickly, realised that I'd walked into a world that you know I perhaps wasn't ready for. Um, Do you I'm, mean on the table or just the general environment, Sean? Well, there was, a, there was a pro who I you know quite respected at the time who walked in the practice room day two or three of the Plymouth summer qualifiers in 1998 and as I say I'd been a, a pro a matter of days and uh, he came over to me in the practice room and um, sort of put his hand on my shoulder and said oh any chance I could have five minutes with you when you finished your practice session and I was like yeah sure yeah no I knew this guy you know and um, this pro I thought was gonna you know unlock the secrets of the tour to me and you know this is this is nice he's going to take me to one side and tell me the secrets the do's and don'ts the etiquettes of the tour this is what you do he took me for a coffee in a in a in a way he took me to sit me down in a cafe that was closed in the Plymouth pavilions and told me in no uncertain terms that I had no place being on the tour that it was an outrage that I'd been allowed to get on the tour in the first place how did you react to that i was terrified you know i was intimidated um, that could a, have put you off for life. I was a 15-year-old like child, yeah. like, you know. Um, and there's this big burly pro, 
you know, who I respected in the game, telling me that I had no right to be there, I had no place being there, um, you know, being very, very intimidatory. And, um, yeah, it was a quite a harrowing moment. You were chosen around that time, it seems remarkable considering how young you were, to represent snooker. I remember you once telling me in a presentation to try to get snooker into the Olympics, which is something that's still going on today. And that was a remarkable experience for you. And there was something to do with astronauts from the Mir space station getting involved? It was mad, actually. It was my first professional job. Um, we were sent, a number of us were sent, you know, representatives from the different Q sports, uh, billiards, carom, nine ball pool, Russian pyramids. And we were sent as a party to Moscow. We stayed in the old Olympic village um, got to see all the city and, you know, what a great time. It's the only time I've ever been to Moscow, even since. Uh, and we went to the opening of the World Youth Games and the astronauts came on the big screen from the Mir space station. They opened the... And it was like, wow, this is, you know, went from being a, a junior player to, to be... This was my first sort of job as a pro. I was thinking, you know, this is this is weird. Like, you know, I've gone from playing in Willie Thorne Snooker Club last week to now I'm in the Olympic Stadium in Moscow helping them open the World Games. It was a it was a surreal experience. Now, we weren't successful in our bid to... I remember Juan Samaranch and his team, who he was president of the IOC at the time, we did our demonstrations and we weren't successful and we've been unsuccessful to this day. Yeah, hopefully it's going to happen someday. We know Jason Ferguson is working so hard at us and I think he's targeting Brisbane now, which is still some way in the distance, but fingers crossed. It's remarkable to think, Sean, that only seven years later... We come to 2005, and you've been off the tour and back on again in the meantime. And out of nowhere, really, you go and win the World Championship. So let's get straight to that. You have said a number of times that you've become so frustrated that in the run-up to that tournament, you were making plans to quit the game altogether. I think you were going to go and work as a car salesman. Now, when it comes to the bit, Sean, looking back, would you really have gone through with it? It's very difficult to say now, isn't it? You know, I did go for an interview for a job, and I, I did have a job lined up. Um, I had no intention of playing in the World Championships that year. I genuinely had had enough. And it was just that, you know, my old coach, Steve Prest, who passed away a few years later, you know, he kind of talked me into it, really. He was like, you know, £750 as it was to enter the World Championships back then was a lot of money. And he was he was coming at it from the point of view that, you know, don't be don't be disrespectful to the game. You've entered the, you've entered the tournament. Um, it's a lot of money. Let's Let's give it one last crack. Because we'd been working very, very hard, you know, on my game throughout the whole year, and we just got nowhere. Well, hang on now, Sean. You'd reached the semi-finals of the British Open, so give yourself a bit of credit. You were making a bit of an impact. Yeah, I guess, I guess I was sort of working under the. Um, I perhaps let myself become seduced by the, you know, expectations of others. Yeah, and, and I, you know, jumped on the tour as a kid, um, on and off, as you say. But there was always this expectation that I'd go on to bigger and better things and it hadn't happened uh, and you're right you know I got to the semis of the British that year I actually I always forget that because that was my biggest run at the time well, I'm here to remind you yeah <laughs> and it gets overshadowed rightly so I suppose by the world championships that happened later that year but yeah I got to the semis uh, and got thrashed duly thrashed by John Higgins 6-0 in the semi-final so um, it wasn't a, a, apart from that you know it was a tough year and uh yeah, when I lost my qualifier, I can never remember who it was to, but it was the it was the qualifier prior to the World Champs that year. I think it was either Rob Milkins or Gerard Green. They're the two I've got in mind. Um, I lost a qualifier, I think, for the China Open or something like that. And um, I just fell out completely out of love with the game. Now, only for a few weeks. Yeah. 
but it was there. Well, something turned it around, obviously, because you mentioned John Higgins there beating you heavily in the British Open. And it was against John that your run at the World Championship that year really started to take off in the second round. Then you beat Steve Davis, of all people, who you'd grown up watching in the quarterfinals, Peter Ebden in the semis. So you're certainly not having an easy run of it through the championship in 05. So at what point of that journey, Sean, do you start to think, hang on a minute, I could actually win this here? Um, yeah, I'm, I, without without you know sounding too blasé, I think once I got past Higgins in the second round, um, you know I fancied beating Steve, um, and of course you know I had a, a, a not look at the draw, but you know it was the match where Peter beat O'Sullivan in the quarters, that famous match they had, and of course you know with no disrespect to Peter, but I, I would rather compete against Peter than Ronnie, obviously, um, and as luck would have it, you know I'm playing Peter in this uh, somebody I knew well. Um, you know, there was no fear factor for me with Peter because he was the local pro in the area where I'd grown up. We I'd known him for 15 years at that stage, knew his game well. Uh, and for me, it was just another game with someone I'd practised with twice a week for the last 10 years. So, um, you know, I had those things in my favour. But yeah, I think once I got past Higgins, who, who at that point had become a bit of a nemesis for me, you know, I remember getting to the, I think it was the last 32 or last 16 of the old LG Cup. And, you know, that was a bit of a run for me at the time, walking into Higgins and just getting demolished. The British Open, as we've mentioned. So I walked into him at the Crucible just thinking, well, I put a good show on. You know, I've, I've won a match final at the Crucible. I'm into the last 16. Um, but once I got past him, I thought, geez, there's only eight players left now. Someone's going to win. Could be me. And one of the features of that run, Sean, was you were very good at finishing matches very strongly. That helped you through a lot of the rounds. And so it proved again in the final, because you were 10-6 down overnight against Matthew Stevens, who'd been in the final before and was a big favourite, actually, to win it. He was on here recently, and he gave you great credit for the way you turned it around on the final day. What were your thoughts starting out on the Monday? What level of chance did you give yourself? Well, I went to bed the night before giving myself no chance. I was extremely downbeat overnight. You know, I'd got to the final and I really felt I'd let myself down in the first half of the final. I got completely overawed with seeing the trophy. That's one of our little etiquettes, you know, um, that's actually changed in recent years. But up until then, you didn't see the trophy at the Crucible until the final. It's the first time I'd ever seen it. And literally, its presence in the room... I can scare you a bit. It threw me. Um, Just wanted to go over and have a look at it. (laughs) And uh, got distracted by all of that, the glitz and the glamour. And it was the last embassy and all the past champions were in attendance. And, you know, all of that um, knocked me a little bit. And before I knew where I was, I was 10-6 behind, as you say. I went to bed devastated that night. Really flat. But something happened. I don't know what it was. When I got up in the morning, I, I felt quite resolute. And I clearly remember thinking, having the attitude of, you know, Matthew will have to scrape me off the table today. I'm going to give it everything. Um, you sound like, you know, those child stars that go on the X Factor and talent shows and stuff. They say, you know, they're 14 year old and they say, I've been working all my life for this. And, you know, I don't want to say the same thing, but at 22, I'd given everything I had at that point in my life to get into that match. And I just remember waking up on that morning thinking, today's the day, today's the day to give everything I've got. Maybe it was easier coming from behind. Maybe if you'd had a lead to defend, that might have been harder in some ways. Well, I've had a lead to defend yeah. in that match, and it isn't easy. It's not easy to go in to later bed. years. Yeah, yeah, it's not easy to go to bed on a lead, um, particularly a lead that might have been shortened or curtailed or not as big as you wanted or whatever. Because um, obviously, from then on, you, you know you can only lose, 
so yeah, I think my my successes in my career, you know, generally have been, you know, when the chips have been down, and I've had to call upon a bit of reserve. And um, looking back, I wish it had been a bit different. To be honest, it's been mm-hmm. quite stressful. <laughs> Matthew also said that towards the end you were taking on shots that you just wouldn't even look at. Now, I guess that's the great thing about being young, isn't it? You don't have any scars, you don't have any fear, so you just take this really positive attitude. And in the end, that was what got you over the line in what turned out to be a very close finish. Yeah, I mean, I've watched it back several times, as you can imagine, and I watch it through fingernails now. I, You know, I watch, it, I watch it with my eyes closed, really, because it's just... Some of the shots I took on were just... They were just wrong. You know, they, they were just plainly wrong. And, you know, as I've moved into a different part of my career now doing a bit of commentary and the studio work you know if I were sat in the studio watching that match I would have been criticizing you know most of my shots but you know they went in and uh, I think I was you know 22 years of age as you say no battle scars um, no fear not much idea either Uh, didn't really understand what I was doing Um, stood on the precipice of being the second youngest champion and all of that stuff. Didn't really get that. Matthew had been to the final before, won and lost big matches, been very successful. He was supposed to win and he was under the pressure that I wasn't. And I think in the end, I played like that. A lap of honour. He's passed the post. And a big rising star is born here. I was sitting pretty much in your eye line as you got down to play the shot that effectively took you over the line. And I remember looking at your face and it was like that was the first time the enormity of it all actually hit you. You'd taken it all in your stride all the way through it as if this was what you'd been doing all your life. But was that right? Was that the moment where it suddenly hit you, the enormity of what had just happened? Yeah, I think you can actually see it clearly on my face as as the last few balls are potted and I'm well over the line. Like, I don't know what to do. And I've watched it back, you know, a few times, as I say, uh, almost a little bit embarrassed that, you know, I didn't do the sort of lap of honour that champions do. And but of course, that was that was that was one of the first, you know, um, I think it was the second. Um, I always get this wrong, but I think it was the second professional event that I'd won, having won the Benson the Benson's qualifier. Yeah, I always forget that. But I'd won that before. But I didn't know what to do. The truth of the matter was, you know, I'd gone from winning junior tournaments and amateur tournaments to winning the World Championship. There's no lap of honour at the Willie Thorne Snooker Club in Leicester. And uh, I didn't know what to do. And at the end, you know, there was there was almost a look of awkward embarrassment on my face because I didn't know what to do. The question you always get asked in a situation like that, particularly when you're a surprise winner, is has it sunk in yet? And people ask you that for weeks, months afterwards. Does it ever really sink in? Do you know what? I don't think it ever does. It never, it never sinks in that... Complete strangers come up to me in the street daily and tell me where they were when they watched that game. That tournament, you know, had a lot going for it because it was the last embassy. It was the the parade of champions. It was two young guys going at it. Um, You know, it had a big following, that tournament, and it's remembered quite fondly by a lot of people. And and people come up to me, as I say, on a daily basis and remind me about it. And I don't don't think it's ever really fully sunk in, to be honest. Um... One of our other small little etiquettes is as a past winner, you know, I would be allowed to, I mean, allowed is the wrong word, but I would be permitted by everyone to pick the trophy up if I see it backstage and have a look at it and, you know, study it. And when I see my name on it, you know, it doesn't feel real. 
it's so long ago as well. It's basically half your life. It probably yeah. feels almost like it happened to someone else. Yeah, it do, it, well, yeah, it doesn't feel like it happened to me. Um, and I, you know, when people tell me about it, and obviously in the modern few last few years, we've got these triple crowns that we wear on our suits, and there's reminders of it everywhere. It doesn't feel like that happened to me, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, I've been desperate to try and win it again as a adult to to try and, you know, get some idea of, of just what it's like. You were very realistic, actually, on that point. During your year as champion, I remember you saying, I might never be world champion again. So you did realise it wasn't going to be easy to win it for a second time. You got back to the final four years later, fairly comprehensive defeat, it has to be said, against John Higgins. He used all his experience, really, to see you off in that one. But then the final against Stuart Bingham, 2015, arguably the best anyone has ever played in a world final and not won it. I think the standard that Stuart and I, Stuart and I, produced in that match sometimes goes um, unnoticed. I think we, I think we had something like thirty breaks over fifty in thirty-three frames of snooker. Um, I'm not sure the standard of safety play was particularly what high. Safety play? What I don't safety remember. Play? Any. What, what yeah, is safety yeah. play? But um, you know, we 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 went at each other for two days, four sessions. The the score in the pot in the aggressive play. Neither of us took a backward step. Um, and I, you know, I had a big lead in that match halfway through it. I think I was eight four ahead at one stage, but I don't really look back. I, I've gone through it with a fine tooth comb. I don't really feel like I threw it away. I felt like Stuart won it. Uh, I never look back at that and think, "Goodness, you know, you bottled that, or you had your chances, or this, that, and the other." I just thought Stuart played out of his brains for the whole two weeks. You know, the list of players he beat to get to the final. And I'm, you know, I'm not putting myself on a pedestal or anything, but you know, he, he beat some worthy winners along the way. Well, he always says that in the quarters he beat the greatest of all time, O'Sullivan. In the semis he beat the greatest of that season, Trump. And in the final he beat the player who'd played the best leading up to the final. So he pays tribute to how well you were playing at that time. Yeah, well, that's nice because you know we 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 really gave it to each other in the final. And as I've always said, and I, you know, I stick to my guns. Stuart fully deserved the win. He played unbelievable snooker for that fortnight. We'll come back to the World Championship in a little while, Sean. We'll talk about this year when you came close again. But just going back to 2005, and obviously suddenly you were thrust into a whole new level of spotlight. You've said to me in the past that you regret some of the things you said back then and maybe you were a bit too outspoken. But listen, which of us can look back on being that age and not cringe at some of the things we said? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And of course, um, you know, I look back now as a 39-year-old father of two and um I do cringe about some of the things I said you know I you know said some things that I really shouldn't I was involved in some things that I shouldn't have been anywhere near um you know I was and still am quite opinionated um but tend to reel it in these days I tend not to get involved that much um of course every now and again I have a flare up mm-hmm. but um back then as a 22 23 24 year old boy really in a man's world didn't really know the ropes, didn't really understand about taking pressure off yourself, didn't understand when you say in a press conference you want to be remembered as one of the greats at 22, or maybe earlier, that that's not really the way to announce yourself to the world's press. And, you know, they talk about making a rod for your own back. Um, I think I could write the book on that. Do you think you needed someone just to take your side and have a word with you? Or did someone in the end have a word with you? Do you know the people around me at the time, you know, they were very, very strong with their advice, but their advice at the time was, you know, don't don't be don't be bullied around by these people. 
you know, don't don't pander to these people. You're as you're as good as any of them. The advice I was getting as a young man was don't take a backward step. You deserve to be here. You know, and you tell them you deserve to be here. Put the cat amongst the pigeons. Don't be pushed around. Don't be bullied. So that was the advice I was getting. I, w- I wasn't ever advised by anyone to let's uh, let's be a little bit more low key here. Let's just calm down. Let's just let our cue do the talking. As we say, you were very young at the time, champion of the world at the age of 22. It had been your dream. So what happens when you achieve your life's ambitions so early? What do you move on to then? Is it a case of trying to do it again? Or do you just want to go on and build as much of a legacy as possible? Very good question. I mean, you know, at 22, I had to um, reset some goals. And, you know, that goal of winning the world championship, I chased all my snooker career. And, of course, at 22, having won it so early, I had most of my career still ahead of me. Um, and one of the goals I set was to try and win it again. That's something I've not yet managed. Um, I wanted to try and get to world number one. I've not managed that. Um, but some of the other goals, you know, I set along the way, you know, I have managed, including winning what we call now the, the Triple Crown Series, the UK and the Masters. Um, and whilst whilst we've now got some other big events that, you know, um, maybe don't outrank those, but they're as big as... Um, the UK, the Masters and the Worlds were always, certainly when I was growing up, they were always the big three. And uh, they were the ones that, you know, you wanted to win. Well, you won the UK in 2008. And that was at a time, of course, when it was still long multi-session matches all the way through. Everyone talks about the fact that you fluked the match ball. It almost seems to be forgotten. You had to play some really good snooker to get to that position in the first place. Yeah, of course, as you say, that was back in the day of the best of 17s all the way through the tournament. Um, you know, it was a long, grueling couple of weeks down in Telford, match after match, after hard slog, after good, you know. And, um, yeah, you know, I came from, I was in a bit of a dip of form at the time. I hadn't really been doing much. Um, and it kind of came from nowhere, that burst. Um, when I found myself in the final against Marco, um, in fact, I vividly remember an interview I did, I think, with Hazel Irvin the night before. Um, and she she commented on just how good Marco had been playing that week. And I was like, yeah, well, you know, we'll see how good he is from behind the yellow. And my, <laughs> my my game plan for the final was to just, you know, attack from distance. And if I got the cue ball up in bulk, I would just roll him in behind the colours. And, you know, as it happened, I think it was the opportunity that led to certainly taking a commanding lead in the final frame. Came from snookering him behind the green. I had him touching ball. He was in all sorts of trouble. And that was a tactic that maybe I should have employed a little bit more. I remember when the winning ball went in. Again, the expression on your face was priceless. You were almost embarrassed by it. Well, I was certainly embarrassed by the pink, you know, going off two cushions and into the middle pocket. I, you know, I stood there before the pink. I potted the penultimate red. I stood there. I'd done the maths on the board. I knew the pink got me over the line. And so I, you know, did what everyone does. Took a deep breath, ran my routine, picked the part of the pocket. That gives me the shape on the object ball. Ran my routine. Nice cueing. Take the cue back. Pause. And I missed it by a foot. <laughs> so I was a little bit embarrassed, really. Um, it went round the table and in the middle pocket. And then, I mean, if you watch it back, I then had to play a safety shot on the red, which was glued to the black. In doing so, I very nearly potted the black. And that would have been, you know, catastrophe at the time. Um, so my head was all over the place. But yeah, the uh, party was lively. It was so close and it was so late. I think we'd gone past midnight when that final finished. When you won the Masters, it could hardly have been more different. Yeah, that, and there's some, you know, some dear friends of the family who 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 comment, you know, they would have seen me grow up through snooker, watched all my, you know, matches over the years, including, you know, a lot of amateur games, a lot of amateur day snooker, you know, who say that that match against Neil, 
winning the Masters in 2015 is the best they've seen me play. 10-2. Amazing against a yeah, player like Neil. I, you know, Neil, Neil's someone who, you know, I have the utmost respect for. Um, he battered me in the final a couple of years prior, the first final at the Ali Pali. Mm. So, you know, I, you know, I've had some defeats to him, beating him, but, you know, I've had some bad losses to him as well. And going into that match, you know, I was just, I think I think he beat Ronnie in the semis. Uh, and I think, you know, I, I was just sort of, I didn't want to be humiliated in the final. I, I obviously wanted, you know, I went into the game believing I could win, but I didn't want to get mauled. You know, I wanted to put up a good show. Let's get into a position where the game's, you know, even at half time. We can both go at each other in the night and see what happens. So to run away 10-2 just came out of nowhere. And again, yeah, instead of a late night finish, it was an early bath. And again, the party was good. And now you'd won those three big tournaments that you'd grown up with, World, UK and Masters. It had taken you about a decade from winning the first of those to complete that set. So how much did that get into your head after that, thinking, this is fantastic, I've just achieved all my dreams now? Well, it was it was a it was a real it was a real tick in the box because it, it taken me, as you say, you know, a long time. It had taken me seven years to complete, you know, the, the get to get the Masters, having won the UK mm-hmm. in, in 08. It Took me seven years to get the third and final part of that, you know, triple crown. And um, every time I turned up to the Masters, someone would mention it. This is the one you need. This is the one you're going for. It's a bit like Rory McIlroy now. A little bit again at the Masters. A little golf. bit, yeah, yeah. and. Um, it does, you know, despite my best intentions, it gets a bit wearing after a while. And you get to that event, right, I'm starting out four wins away from completing that, right, let's give it everything. You make it too important, too, too big. There's a couple of players now resting on that. They've got two of the three. And it's not easy, you know. So I was when I got it, I was thrilled. Let's come to the quick fire round, Sean. This is where I just throw a few topics at you and you say whatever comes into your head. Your favourite song? Favourite song, goodness, uh, very hard to say because I change like the wind, but uh, anything by Fleetwood Mac. Okay. Best golf course you've ever played? Oh, Adair Manor, by some distance. It's going to be the Ryder Cup venue, of course, in a few years' time. Your favourite holiday destination? Uh, probably uh, New York City. The best anyone's ever played against you? Goodness, um, I think Ronnie's, Ronnie's uh, uh, when Ronnie took me apart at the Crucible with a session to spare, that was pretty decent. And your favourite movie? Favourite movie would have to be The Godfather. I mentioned golf there, Sean, as we move on. And you're a scratch player, I believe, or anywhere around that. And you entered Open Championship qualifying a few years ago. The thing I can't get my head round, how on earth does someone who's dedicated himself to snooker so much to become good enough to be world champion also find the time to become so good at another sport as well? I played golf from being a, a young man. Um, blood, uh, it was in the family. It was, you know, my dad was a pro golfer in his day, um, so golf was always in and around the family. There was never a moment where I had to, you know, choose between snooker. It was always snooker, but golf was a, something I, you know, did in, you know, when I wasn't snookering. When I learned to drive uh, and got my wheels, um, you know, golf became a bit of an obsession. In fact, there was one quite funny time where my dad rang me and he said, uh, "How's your practice been today?" I said, yeah, it's been good. He said, um, how was it at the club and blah, blah, blah. I said, oh, yeah, no, it was great. He said, um, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm just practicing the snooker and I'm going to do some more long reds. And this. He said, oh, that, he said, it's just that I'm stood in the snooker club and uh, you're not here. Mm. And he caught me like, you know, and this, this had been going on for weeks. I was going into the club, turning in, sort of clocking in, if you like. And then me and my mate Jason would sneak off in the car and go and play 36, sometimes 54 holes. 
So my snooker, um, you know, when I look back at why I dropped off tour as a 15, 16, 17-year-old... It's no great uh, mystery. It's no great mystery. The short game was excellent. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about the World Championship this year then. And your Crucible record, as we've discussed, historically has been very good. The last few years, maybe not so much, but you turned it around this year. And in the quarterfinal, you play Judd Trump, who obviously was the favourite since going in on the back of yet another great season. A real landmark win for you. And you, again, just like 2005, finished the match so strongly. Well, I, I mean, I went into that match having played a good match against Bintow. I got out of jail against Mark Davis in the first round. He was all over me. Um, and I managed to turn that round. I played really well against Jan Bintow in the last 16, which gave me confidence going into the match against Judd. Because... Like I, I deeply respect you know what Judd's achieved, um, but you do get your chances against Judd, and he's become you know very close to the all-round player now. He's strong in all areas, but he does play you know a, a similar game to me in terms of going for the win. Doesn't sit back and wait. He will come at you, and you know in the first couple of sessions, you know I picked him off, uh, and, and going into the last session, ten six ahead, um, was fully aware that a Trump barrage was coming. He was going to come and have a run at me. And I think the other match on the other side, which I think was Selby and Williams, had finished early. They lifted the divider. We had the room to ourselves. The place got very loud. The atmosphere in the Crucible was electric. And he mounted his comeback, and he started potting balls from some of the most ridiculous positions I've ever seen. I played shots where I walked back to my chair thinking, I've got him bang in trouble there whack, crack along red in, clear up. And I just sat there and I was like, it was a real test of what have you got in the locker? And that's what I'm saying, the fact that he came back at you so strongly, everyone thought, oh, Judd's going to win this now. But you found something, as so often at the Crucible, right at the end and got over the line magnificently. I think when it got to 11 each, I just had a real resolute voice in my head that was like, it's best three for the semi-finals. doesn't matter what's gone before. You know, I'd lost that session to that point, like 5-1. But, you know, we were 11 each. We need two more frames. The, 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 the mathematics of it hadn't changed. Uh, and so I just, you know, when everyone else was getting wound up and excited, and I was actually quite calm. I think I was probably the calmest person in the room. And uh, he got a chance at 11-all. He missed. Reds everywhere. And I think I stood in and made a good break. And I think I, you know, I think I won the last frame well as well. Um, you know, I've never had a problem getting over the line. Just sometimes my game, you know, has meant I haven't got to the line. And you hung in and you hung in and you hung in in the semi-final against Kyron Wilson and again finished strongly, again inspired by the line. So now you're in the final against Mark Selby. How do you look back on it, Sean? Do you have any regrets about it? Do you feel you could have done things differently? It's funny because I think when you lose a match like that to Selby over a distance, of course Mark and I have been playing each other since we were boys, so we know each other very, very well. We're good friends away from the table. We know each other's game extensively. It's very easy to come off a game against Mark Selby and say, well, I got Selby'd. I got outmaneuvered, I got outsafetyed, I got I got was, you know, tactically second best. And I've been through the match, you know, like air crash investigation. Where did this match go wrong? And it wasn't that, was it? You wasn't weren't that at all. Wasn't that at all. So is that the biggest disappointment, Sean, that you did have the chance to play your natural, fluent, heavy scoring game and weren't able to do it until the very end when it was perhaps a bit too late? The disappointment for me was on the Sunday night, that second session, I lost that session heavily. And there was four or five frames in that eight where I was in first, make 40 or 50, 
played the wrong shot at the wrong time. It wasn't necessarily I was missing chances, but I played the wrong positional shot at the wrong time, which led me down a bit of a cul-de-sac. And from then on, I then lost the ensuing tactical battle and lost those frames. Had I not lost that session, I actually won the match by two frames. So I look back at that second session as where it went wrong. And when you come then to the final session, when you did put up a great battle towards the end, when it looked to have been lost... You missed that red when it looked like it was going 17-16. You can't know, Sean. But what's your gut feeling? Had that gone in, do you think you would have won? That's why I played it. I was reading the, you know, we, we, I think people sometimes forget, you know, I'm reading him and I'm reading the room. I'm reading the atmosphere in the room. I strongly believed if I won that frame, I was going to win the match because I'd won the previous two frames in one visit. I'd really started to mount a comeback and the atmosphere in the room had changed. I had... 95% of the support in the room. Um, you know, the fans were unbelievable. The snooker family that turned out were just off the charts. The support was outrageous. And I, you know, it wasn't a fact that I got giddy and got carried away with it. I genuinely believed, not that he was starting to rock, but he'd had a couple of chances to put me away and hadn't. Then I'd stepped in and won those two frames with sentries. And I just thought, if I can win this frame to get to 16... I think I've got him. And speaking of gut feelings, Sean, again, you can't know, but what do you think? Will you be world champion again one day? If I'm honest, I think time's running out. I think I think as I reach my you know 40th year next year, mm-hmm. um, it'd be very easy for me to sit here and say, of course, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think I can win the world championships again, absolutely. But I don't think I've got that many more opportunities to do it. Here it goes, and that's the way, and what is Vicky, absolutely delighted. It's been a great match, Sean Murphy, take a bow, he's been absolutely superb. But Mark Zerby, from day one when he's played his first match, looked to be queuing better than anybody, and he's carried on for the 17 days, and a very worthy winner. One thing you've been in the headlines for recently, Sean, is some comments you made about the amateur players being brought into the big events as top-ups, and it was remarkable, actually, how much attention those comments got. So how do you look back on it now that the dust has settled? Any regrets about saying it, or do you stand by your comments? Well, who knew? Who knew that so many people were so passionate about the makeup of the World Snooker Tour and, and who the players are that comprise it? Who knew that, that those comments I made losing that match in the UK Championships would drive such interest? I certainly didn't. Um, do I regret it? I regret the timing of my comments. I regret saying it having lost because that looks like sour grapes. It, it certainly wasn't sour grapes. My uh, record on that subject has been clear for a long, long time as a board member of WPBSA, as Players Commission Chairman. You know, my views on amateur players in professional events have always been clear. Um, and I don't agree with it. But I wish I'd not said it. One, you know, just having lost to the young man, because it's, it appears as if I'm bitter, which, again, I wasn't. Um, but also, I, I felt very guilty in the aftermath of that event that two things, perhaps it put more pressure on him, put more attention on him than perhaps he needed at that time, trying to make his way in the game. And and also that, you know, it was just it just wasn't the right thing to say at that time. And um, I stand by my comments, but... 
I don't think it was the right time to say it. When your playing career is maybe winding down and comes to an end, would you like to see an administrative role for yourself in developing the game around the world? I, I mean, I, you know, I've always said that, you know, when I do walk away from snooker, whenever that is, you know, not just from a playing point of view, but from any point of view, when, I, when I'm no longer involved, I'd love to think that I'd contributed to the game being in a better place than it was when I first came to it as a, an eight-year-old boy. So, yeah, you know, I've dipped my toe into the uh, political underworld mm. <laughs> of sport um, and stepped away from it in the recent years. But, you know, I'd like to think that there might be a time where I'll return to that because um, I think, you know, despite having the odd um, flare-up and controversial comment every now and again, I think deep down I've probably got some positive things I can bring to the game and could make snooker a better place. We've really adopted you in Ireland in the last few years, Sean. You've moved over. Obviously, you've got the most Irish name you could possibly have. <laughs> yeah. I think you're in Dublin about three years now. Yeah. So how are you finding it? I mean, Dublin, as anyone who's been there knows, is a great city, one of the best places on the planet. And, uh, you know, it's great watching the children thrive, uh, you know, with their friends and families. Harry's just started school this year. Um, you know, it's it's that sort of family bubble that, you know, you think about and, you you know, you just hope for. Um, you know, I'm keen to try to, you know, not make the mistakes that my parents made uh, and give and give and give our children opportunities that, you know, uh, we perhaps didn't. So um, it's fabulous. It's, it's a great place to be. Uh, the people are unbelievably friendly. You know, that Irish hospitality is talked about around the world. And obviously growing up in a very Irish family, um, you know, that's something I know better than most. But it's a funny story, actually, just quickly, I'll tell you the funny story. My mother, bless her, had the job of going to the, to register my name. And my, my mum and dad, you know, both come from Irish families. I think my mother's mother was English, but everyone else in the family is Irish. And... Um, my mum, you know, had the job to go and register my name. Obviously, my father wanted me named Sean, S-E-A-N, mm. as they do in Ireland. You know, obviously, the grandparents all wanted that. The family back in Ireland wanted that was the way it was going to be. And my mum panicked. And when she got to the re to the office to register my birth, the guy on the desk talked her out of it and corrected her spelling and said, are you sure you want to spell Sean like that? Sure it should be S-E-A-N, not S-H-A-U-N? And she said, oh, is that is that how you... Bless her, she was panicked and she was she was convinced out of it. I don't think my dad ever forgave her. I think I've seen your name misspelt in the Irish media a few times as S-E-A-N. So she did get her way in the end, to some extent. <laughs> and of course, Sean, it's Christmas in a few days now. So what's that going to be like in your house? Yeah, manic. You know, children, five and three-year-old, um, excited for Santa coming. Uh, excited to see what's going to be under the tree. Um, it's obviously a season of excess, isn't it? It's exactly what it's meant to be. Uh, and, you know, we, we look forward to it. And, uh, you know, it's it's just you get up in the morning and see the children with the presents and stuff. It takes you back to a time that, you know, you've forgotten. I think it unlocks the child in us all a little bit this time of year. Um, you know, everyone's in a little brighter mood. Um, take a little bit of a moment to think about, you know, people who aren't as fortunate. People who, you know, don't necessarily have that, a house full of happiness and that kind of life around them. And, uh, you know, we do what we can where we can to try and help people you know, that we know and, and that we don't. So um, take a, a little moment to think about that uh, and, and try and remember what, what Christmas is actually all about. And your hopes for 22, Sean? I guess we're all hoping for some sort of way out of this horrible situation the world's been plunged into over the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, your own your own personal goals aside, it's, you know, we're all in the same boat, aren't we? And in our all our careers, whatever we're doing, um, you know, we're all uh, sort of just 
taking a deep breath and waiting to see, you know, what the new restrictions are going to be in the new year and what's going to happen. Will there be restrict? Will there not? You know, what's going to happen? Can we go back to China? Will those events open up? Will they come back? The world, not just in snooker, but is in a bit of a state of flux. And I guess we're all just waiting and seeing what's going to happen and hoping that we can all go back to something like normality. It's great that the game has managed to maintain so much normality during this difficult time. And one of the constants of Snooker, Sean, is that it's always great to sit down with you for a chat. And it's been so again today. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and thanks so much for joining us on the World Snooker Tour podcast. Thanks a lot. Same to you. So that's it. Our final World Snooker Tour podcast this side of Christmas. There's still one more to go, though, before the turn of the year, as we look back on some of the highlights from episodes throughout 2021, including Judd Trump, Kyron Wilson, Neil Robertson, Mark Williams and Gary Wilson. That'll be out next Monday, the 27th of December. Until then, thanks so much for listening and have a wonderful Christmas.